Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, if you would. Father, we come before you with just awe in our hearts, Lord. Father, you are the great I am. What a beautiful God-honoring set of worship to begin with this morning. God, our, our hearts are prepared in your presence, Lord, to hear from you. Lord, we come expecting great things. And Father, as we, as we gather here today in safety and comfort, Lord, we pray for the churches that are gathering around the world. Lord, we pray for those churches, especially today, where they gather at risk of their own safety and security, where the land has outlawed the worship of Jehovah. Father, we pray that you would bless those churches, bless those pastors especially, Lord, that are leading them. Father, we think of the churches in Nepal as that land continues to be shaken. Father, that you would build the church back stronger, deeper, wider. Father, that your love would be manifest in a very real way. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for visiting here with us this morning. And we ask that you would continue, Lord, to pour your spirit out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 10. If you missed last week, I really encourage you. And, and listen, you know, in a church our size, it's not uncommon, especially this time of the year, that there could be um, 30% of the church gone on a Sunday. So that means that some of you probably weren't here last week. So you need to go back and you need to get the message. Now, we have this mobile app now. I think you've heard about it. If you haven't, I'm telling you, we have a mobile app. You can go to our website and download it. And at the click of a button, you can listen to any message that you miss. That's not a convenience or an excuse to miss any message or to miss church, okay? But if you do, you had 110 fever and your car blew up, if that, you know, if something like that... <clears throat> Now, if you miss it, go onto that app and download. And in particular, you know, the, the Holy Spirit moves, and sometimes these messages, they dovetail together in very important ways. And uh, this is a sequence where they do. Pastor Bob has been doing a, a series called The Parables of Luke, and we'll continue in that series. And we're going to take a little break from that, but we're in the same chapter that he was in last week when he taught on the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to be at the beginning of that same chapter, Luke chapter 10. And in the midst of these parables, Christ, or Luke rather, for us, gives an account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that ministry specifics here this morning. The reason it's important to take time over to review last week's is because Bob gives a very in-depth overview of this land called Samaria. And that's, I'm going to explain a little bit about it today, but you really want to go back and get that context for this morning. I'm going to read Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. I'll read down through this story, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Now, this 70 others also, this isn't the 12 that he had sent out in the previous chapter. Those were the disciples. This is 70 in addition to the disciples, a different group of men. Not the 12 disciples, but followers of Christ nonetheless. And he sent them two by two before his face into every city and the place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. 
Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. And heal the sick there. And say to them, and this is crucial, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazine. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and for Sidon at judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted in heaven, will be brought down to hell. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And I'll fin- we'll finish this last portion, verses 17 uh, through 20, in, in, a, in a few minutes. The sending of the 70. This whole idea, this whole cursing here at the end, woe to you, Chorazine, what Jesus is saying, he uses a comparison of three ancient cities, three Old Testament cities that were judged, Sodom, Sidon, judged before God. Um, and he and Tyre. Those were Old Testament cities that were judged. And then he compares it to three New Testament cities. Capernaum, we know Christ did ministry there. Chorazin, we know he did ministry there. These, these areas that Christ was doing ministry, Bethsaida, these were areas where, where Christ was doing miracles. And what he's saying is, listen, if those Old Testament cities had the witness that you had, had seen the power of God like you've seen it, they would have been sitting in, ash, in, in sackcloth, repenting of their sins. In other words, you are without excuse. Now, it's important as we read this story to set the geographical context for this portion of the Gospel of Luke. This is a very unique portion of Scripture because beginning in, in chapter 10, moving through Luke 14, there is record here of what Christ did that's not recorded in any other Gospels. Every once in a while in these next four chapters, you'll see a story that overlaps with some of the other texts, but for the most part, this is new material that we don't have any idea of in any of the other Scriptures. Now, at the time of Christ, Palestine, the land of Palestine, was divided into four general regions. In the center was Judea. This was the center in every way. It was the center of the region geographically. It was the area that surrounded Jerusalem. It was also the center politically and religiously. It was the center of pride and privilege. And because of that, it was also the center of prejudice. Prejudice towards those lands that laid all around it, the other three areas. Immediately to the north of Judea, in the center of the country, of the center of Palestine, 
was the area of Samaria, that region just north of Judea, south of the Sea of Galilee, and mostly to the, almost, well, predominantly to the um, west, of, if you will, of the Jordan Valley. This was the land of Samaria. Pastor Bob spends a great deal of time talking about the relationship there between Judea and Samaria. That's why I want you to go back and listen to that. For our study this morning, just a brief refresher is that Judea felt perpetual hostility towards Samaria. Now, north of Samaria and encompassing the region on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee was the area that we know as Galilee. We've talked a lot about this area over the recent months. Those in Judea had a contemptuous term for that area. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, as a Jewish person, that would be very offensive to you, that you would be associated with Gentiles. And what it had to do with was the, basically the selling out, if you will. There was a, a mixture of, of Jew and Gentile there. There had been intermarrying, and there had been a mixing of cultures and a mixing even some of religion. The Galileans were kind of the blue-collar crowd. <laughs> they kind of liked their freedom. They, they, they marched to their own drums, and they didn't want to be involved in the politics and the and the, that was going on and down in Judea. The final region lay on the other side of the Jordan River. If you think of Israel today in terms of a, of a modern-day map, it's what would be considered the West Bank. So it's this area that's south of the Sea of Galilee and north of the Dead Sea, and it would be to the east, if you will, of the Jordan River there. And this area, in this time... In ancient maps, you'll see it as Perea. Now, Perea is a Greek name. It literally means, it comes from the Greek literally meaning the country beyond. Now, this is an important observation since the majority of the last six months of Christ's life, as I've mentioned already, recaptured here in these next four chapters of Luke, are spent in this region doing ministry, the country beyond, the neglected land. Prior to Christ moving into the region of Perea, he spends, or he sends rather, an advanced team, a team of 70 men. This is a long tradition. We have adopted this tradition in missions. I think of mass evangelism today. We in Philadelphia have had the privilege over the years of having some of the great evangelists and ministry teams in history come through our city. We've had Billy Graham come numerous times. We've had the Harvest Crusade, Greg Laurie come numerous times. There are people sitting in these seats today that are here because of those crusades and the fruits of those ministries. Every time one of those crusades has come, there was an advance team that came months ahead of time. We would often work with them. You've probably worked with them, many of them, as they would come and they would train the local churches. They would train how to do follow-up. They would train how to do street evangelism. They would come and say that the kingdom of the God is coming near to you. The message of the gospel is coming. This is an advanced team. Christ is about to go through this area of Perea, and he is sending an organized campaign to scout out the land, to prepare the towns for his ministry that he will do in the last six months of his life. And Jesus sees the harvest is ready in this land of Perea. What did he see? What did he see as he looked out there that made him 
prepare with these 70 men, 70, a significant number in, in, in spiritual context, in biblical context, the number of spiritual completion, the number of spiritual con- perfection as he sent these 70 men. He looks out there and he says, the harvest is plenty, but the labors are few. That term harvest, Jesus would use three times. And you need, we need to separate these out because oftentimes if we read through Scripture too fast, we say, oh, I, heard, I read this story already. No, three separate times Jesus uses that word image of harvest. The first time he uses it is in John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4, to describe what Jesus saw after the meeting of the woman at the well, Jesus talking about the people of Samaria, and he looks out the town that the woman was from, they got, she got saved, her family got saved, the whole town got saved, and then Jesus looks at the whole region and he says, this is the despised region, this region of hostility, and he says, do you not say that there are four months until the harvest? Behold, I say, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and look, the fields are already white and ready for harvest. John chapter 4, verse 35. See, if the disciples had reported to a church mission committee, that mission committee would certainly agree, yes, the people in Samaria are desperate and in need of Jesus Christ. They're in need of His salvation. They're in need of the grace and mercy that He brings. But they would have looked at this area, they would have studied the field, they would have looked at the people, looked at the country, looked at the culture, looked at all the obstacles that they were up against. And by the way, those are all good things. Studying and understanding the people that we are working with and trying to reach. Studying our neighbor across the street, our neighbor across town, our our neighbors around the world. Studying them, that's all good and understanding. But then what happens is we come to the conclusion Yes, there's much work to do before the harvest is, is brought in. The ground is very hard in the field. We need to plow and work this ground. We need to prepare it to sow. And then finally, after all that preparation, we'll sow the seed. Then we'll wait patiently for the harvest. Four months until the harvest. Jesus says, when you look at the field, that's how you see it. Four months. But I say, no, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are ready now. They would postpone the harvest. Our tendency oftentimes is to postpone the harvest. Jesus said the harvest is ready. But Lord, this is a dark land. And the people are entrenched in their darkness. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly, said Christ. That's why I see the harvest for me. I remember one time, we, it was the year after 9-11, and we had taken a missions team up to New York City. And on one day, we were traveling. This was a youth component of this team, and Monica Gaglione and I were traveling. We took the subway as far as it would go out towards Staten, uh, Coney Island, and we got off at the last stop. And I thought it was right there at Coney Island. Little did I know, it's like another long walk on a very hot August day, and we're carrying portable sound equipment and guitars and all kinds of stuff, and we're walking and walking. I don't know where we're going. And we get down finally to Coney Island, this park where we're going to do some ministry, and the team is exhausted. I mean, there's people falling over on, in the shade. They're grabbing water. People running around. I'm starving. I'm like, man, i got to get a hot dog or something, and I'm worried about feeding these high school kids. And Monica is gone. She's gone. I don't know where she is. I don't know what she's doing. 
But finally, you know, we get some food, we get some water, and she comes back, and she's like jumping up and down. She goes, guys, 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 there are lost people everywhere. <laughs> I love Monica's heart for the lost. And that's the, that's the mindset that we need to have. It's the mindset Christ had. The second time Jesus uses that image of the harvest is recorded in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus was looking out this time upon the people of Galilee. It says he was going about to all the cities and villages teaching and preaching and healing, teaching and preaching and healing. But when he saw the harvest, it says that he was moved to compassion. Moved to compassion because they were distressed and scattered as sheep, not having a shepherd. He said then to his disciples, indeed, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus saw the multitudes distressed, scattered, fleeced, harassed by wolves, fainting and dying, and he said, yes, this is the time. This is the time for the harvest. The third time Jesus uses the image of the harvest is in the story we read today, the sending of the 70. He's now in the neglected area of Perea. First, he was in the hated area of Samaria. Second, he was in Galilee, the area held in contempt. And finally, the neglected area. That is the inspiration of this mission here. If you know of any country that's more difficult than another, anywhere submerged in darkness of a far, false form of religion, that is where the harvest is. Wherever there's dereliction, desolation, and desperation on earth. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ would say, there, there, there is the harvest. Dereliction, desolation, and desperation. It might be across the street from where I live. There might be a home there, a family there that's in desperation. It might be across the town. We had a team yesterday up in, in, Ken, in Kensington with the rock ministry, ministering up there. Certainly a land of desperation, a land of desolation or it might be around the world. This past week, I had a great privilege to travel to Europe along with the brother Zach Koshi from church here. Together, we served with 222 Ministries, and 222 Ministries is based on the Scripture, 2 Timothy 2.2, which says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Zach and I were there teaching men and women in a leadership conference. Primarily, these were pastors and church leaders, almost all of them of Iranian descent. Most of them, men and women, who were former Muslims who had come to know Jesus Christ, who were now serving Christ. Many of their stories included being imprisoned in Iranian and Afghanistan jails because of their faith, some of them multiple times. These men and women are truly working in the fields white for harvest. I'll share more about some of them before we're finished. Being there this week, working with those men and women who were returning from the harvest field, brings us to this last portion of Scripture here in this story, they, when they return. Let's read verses 17 through 20 here. What happens when these men come back? Then the 70 returned, verse 17, with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now that's interesting that they would say that 
Because nowhere did Jesus in his commissioning and giving the details of his order, we'll go into a little bit more of the details here, but nowhere in there did he say, go out and cast out demons in my name. Those were not part of his instructions here. But yet, that's the first thing that they say coming back. And whenever you're in a desperate, desolate land, whenever there, there, is, there is a darkness of false religion, such as in Islam, there is with it a demonic presence. There is a, an enemy at work to deceive the minds. Little did I know, speaking with some of these pastors and the, uh, those men and women that had grown up in Iran, little did I know that how intermixed Islam is with, the, with demonology, with spirituality, and oftentimes mixing with the tribal customs that date back even before, centuries before, back to where before Islam. And there is a hold. There's a satanic hold on the minds of these people oftentimes. But the Spirit of Jesus Christ is at work. He's at work. He's at work. They come back and they say, Lord, we cast out demons. They're subject to us in your name, Lord, in your name, They were subject to us. That didn't move Jesus. (laughs) Didn't surprise him. I'm sure he was tickled that they were impressed by that. But I love his reaction. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I, I give you all the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, do not, be, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names, your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, listen, they come back and say, Lord, you know, there was people healed. They didn't mention that. They said, Lord, even, even the demons are subject to us. In your name. And Jesus basically is saying, that ain't nothing. Dude, I was there, man. I saw Satan descend from heaven and fall like lightning. I saw the fall of Satan. I was there when it happened. It ain't no big deal. I rule over him. He's been put in his place. And in my name, you rule over him. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the thing that matters most, that you are a citizen of heaven. You reside in heaven. That's where your citizenship is. All that evil is subject under heaven. How does Jesus send this 70 out? First, in his command, is pray and then go. Two great commands that he gives them, pray and then go. Pray, ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. Pray, not only that, that you would go, but that God would send more laborers. Pray, but realize that you are the laborers. Pray and then go. And Jesus says, Go your ways, behold, and this is the key, I send you. Jesus was sending them. Jesus is sending us. And then this very comforting phrase, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. But don't worry. It gets better. 
You're going out in the midst of wolves, and don't take anything with you. <laughs> don't take a high-powered rifle. Don't take a shotgun. Don't take a suit of armor. <laughs> Go empty-handed and empty pockets. I'm sending you out as lambs before wolves, and take nothing with you. But remember, I send you. I send you. He sends them out, empty hands and empty pockets, no purse. No purse, that would, have been, that would have been where they would have put their food, their provision for the long journey in case they got hungry. No wallet, that would have been where the money would have been stored. So when they got in a bind, they could pull out the God of Visa or the God of MasterCard and bail themselves out. No shoes, don't carry any shoes with you. Don't carry any sandals. In other words, the ones on your feet are good enough. Don't worry about what you're going to do. Don't worry about what you're going to do when they wear out. Well, what if they wear out? Don't worry about it. Many of us would view this as a decree to poverty, and it, and it is, certainly, simplicity. But I think I would phrase it more aptly for us as a call to dependency, an absolute call to dependency. About six months ago, I had a great privilege with several leaders here from church to sit in Pastor Bob's dining room, and at the table was Pastor Oscar Maru from Nairobi Chapel in Kenya. And you've been hearing that name more and more often, and you're going to have the great privilege, and do not miss it, to sit in this auditorium and hear Pastor Oscar speak to us come the fall. And it's one of the top three encounters I've ever had with another human being. His understanding of Scripture, his love for Christ, his understanding for the church. But Oscar, and, and, and it would fill volumes to even share what I heard that day. But the one thing that I really was tickled with that fits with this, Oscar looked at us and said, you know, we have something in Kenya that is a great advantage to you in the West. And I got my pen out, my notebook open, and I'm leaning forward. You tell me what it is, Oscar, and I'm going to do it. He goes, yep, we have a great advantage. You know what it is? Tell me. I want to know. Poverty. Eh, I think I'll wait on that one. <laughs> well, you got another one? Poverty. Poverty. It's a great advantage because it's a dependency on God, and it's a simplicity for living. Oscar says, I can take a high school student, I can reach him with the gospel. Many Muslim, Pastor Shem grew up in the same neighborhood that Oscar ministers to. Shem will tell you that most of his friends were Muslims growing up. Oscar reaching them with the gospel. And, and, he, and so he's reaching them and they're coming to know Christ. They're living in abject poverty and he says they can go anywhere in the world and be happy with a warm, clean bed and a meal to eat that day. That's all they need. He can send them anywhere in the world with what is the equivalence of maybe ten or $11,000 a year U.S. dollars. It takes us five to six times that to send a family from the United States into the mission field. Now, I'm not saying, listen, if you're called to go, go. God's going to provide no matter what. Well, what I'm saying is where are we putting our dependency? Where is our dependency? Empty pockets, empty hands. This takes a man out of the way. These guys didn't come back in, in verse 17 there and say, God, you should have seen what they did when we. He said, no, Lord, you wouldn't believe it. Demons are subject to us in your name, God, your name. 
We're too apt to rely, and I fall into this. Listen, I'm too apt to rely on my own bag of tricks. Don't take a bag with you. There's no tricks in it. You can't whip out your iPad. You can't whip out your iPhone. You can't log on to your Google Docs. You just trust me. You can't whip out the credit card to buy or leverage your way out of a tight spot. God's our provision. When needs are met along the way, there's no doubt where our help comes from. I look to the hills. My help comes from God. And he says for them to go, empty hands, empty pockets, but go, and I'm so glad he said this, two by two. I can tell you without a doubt that if he asked me to go on this mission alone, I couldn't do it. Not sure I could do it anyway, but there's a chance if I get to go with somebody else. If I had a companion, a wingman, a partner, well, then things become completely different. I think it becomes possible. Not easy, still incredibly intimidating, but at least I know I'm not going alone. I've shared with you many stories. Sometimes people say too many. That's why I try to limit them. But it was a big part of my life, you know, that I spent on a submarine. And people say, what is that like? Like, I, I can't imagine being on a sub because if something goes wrong on a sub, like, if you're in an airplane, maybe you can land it. If you're on a surface ship, can't you get out in a lifeboat? But if you're a 1,000 feet below the surface and something goes wrong, I'd say, yeah, but at least I was going down with everybody. And there was comfort in that in some weird way. <laughs> This two-by-two two model is one that we've tried to follow in, in our area of missions. Of course, most often, our missions are done in teams. A team went yesterday to Kensington. But on those teams, and every team that I've ever led, and I think Pastor Bob Banks, Keith Schleifer, some of these guys who have led teams, they would say even on those teams, there was, there was a guy, there was a wingman that they had, a partner. But if they didn't have them, they probably wouldn't have felt comfortable going. I know that it's been that way with me anywhere I've gone. This past week, sharing with you that I, I had the privilege of, pa- of, of traveling with, with Brother Zach Koshi. We were leading a conference, a teaching conference. I know it's not, it's, I'm not comparing it to going out be- lambs before wolves. But listen, we were leading a missions conference or a teaching conference to those ministering in the Iranian and Afghanistan churches where it's kind of poking a stick at the nest of the enemy. And there was a lot of spiritual warfare that went on in my preparation to go there, including falling through the ceiling of my attic. Now, that might not be just spiritual preparation. That might have been stupidity. But all of that in preparing to go had impact on my life. And to know that I would go and there would be a brother there with me and that we could have that synergy together, have a prayer partner always there, and to work together in synergy, that two-by-two model is a beautiful model. Then Jesus says, listen, when you go, find a man of peace. Peace unto you. And if the peace returns to you, that's where your house is. This is critical to the success of mission, whether you're looking across the street at a family, across town at a community, or around the world at a country. Each community, every family, every town has a man of peace, a woman of peace. These are God's undercover agents. They might not even realize it, how God is using them. But they're God's undercover agents. These are seekers of God. 
They may be lost in the false religion of Islam or some other lost religion, but they're seekers of God. They're lovers of God. And they're looking for a blessing from God. And when you come in the name of God, peace unto you, and it's received. They, in other words, they sense that you're a, you're, you care about them as a human being. You care about their family, that there's a love in you that transcends who you are and you want to reach them and they receive it. There was a woman in this conference that we were teaching. Her name is Stella and she leads a ministry called Pearl of Persia. It's, it's a ministry to women, um, abused women, and it's kind of like in essence almost the international justice mission vision, if you will, for Iran. Beautiful image, the Pearl of Persia. And she just took, got back from a team and taking a team to a Syrian refugee filled with Muslim children on the border of Turkey and Syria. And when she went in there, they, they went with a, with a heart for children's ministry and women's ministry. And when they got there, it was just chaos. The children were disobedient. They, they were, you know, they, there was a language barrier that they were trying to cross with, with translators. And, and it was just miserable until she found, in this case, a son of peace who happened to be about 16 years old, Muslim child, who realized that this woman, Stella, and her team were coming in the name of Christ. And this 16-year-old man of peace, he rounded up those kids along with another friend of his, and he got them all to toe the line, speaking to them in Arabic, saying, listen, you're going to obey this woman. She came here to bring blessing to us and you will obey him, or I'm going to punch your lights out. <laughs> I don't know what he said. But she said once he, she connected with him, the whole community changed. And for a week, when they came in in that bus to that refugee camp in the morning, those kids were lined up in order, sitting down, ready for the program to begin. The man of peace. I met a man of peace this week. His name is, is Pastor... Vahik. And Matt, this bring up the second slide first this time, Matt. So Pastor Vahik is this guy standing next to me in the back with the western cut plaid, black and white and red shirt there. A man of peace. Somebody reached him for Christ. He was an Iranian criminal, drug addict, thug, punk, by his own description. And he'd come out of Iran and he was settled in, in the Netherlands and came there mainly because of the access to drugs and sex. And the Spirit of God descended upon him through witness and he came to know Christ. And he was so moved by the love of Christ and the peace that was brought to him that he could not help himself but to go back to Iran. This time in the name of Christ. This time into the gangs and the neighborhoods where he used to do drugs, where he used to commit crimes with other Muslim kids and he would go back there and in this time he would bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and as a result of it he would spend time in an Iranian prison because of his faith. I met another man of peace this week along with his wife. If you go to that other slide... This is Zach Koshy. That's who I travel with. You probably know Zach here. And then that is not Karzai. That is not the president of, of Afghanistan, although he could pass for him, couldn't he? Matter of fact, maybe that looks helped him get out of Iran and Afghanistan. It's another story. But 
He's a, he was a Muslim. He was an, he's an artist, brilliant artist, brilliant artist. Matter of fact, he and, that's his wife there, Afag, Sharam. His name means assistant to the king. And I, the names killed me, Sharam, Vahik, uh, Shariar, Varej, Farshid. I mean, these names were driving me crazy. And, and we were, I was messing them up left and right, and, and I kept messing up Sharam because I knew Shah meant king, and I thought Sharam meant son of the king. And I kept, and we, Zach, Koshi, and I, we kept getting this wrong, and, and Sharam would grab a translator, and, and he, was, he, very, he wanted us to know what his name meant because it's very important to him. He says, no, I'm not the king. I'm not, I'm not the son of the king. I'm not equal to the king. Sharam means assistant to the king. Assi- that, that, that's what the name he was given as a Muslim child. <laughs> assistant to the king. And this Muslim child would come to know Christ. And then he became, he said, I'm, the, I'm truly the king's assistant now. And he, would, he had an art studio in, in Iran, and he would witness to his students, mostly Muslims, telling them about Christ. He would paint pictures of Christ, draw pictures of Christ, draw scenes from the Bible of Christ, and then tell them about the gospel. And many were coming to know Christ. And then one Christmas, he said, we are going to have a Christmas party. And it was there that the secret police arrested him and put him in prison. Both he and his wife separated them and put him in the prison. And for the sake of time this morning, just to let you know that this work of the Spirit of God is for today. I, 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 you know, I think many, unfortunately, would read this and say, yeah, that what happened in the sending of the 70, it was for that time and it's complete. I, I came back, I came back this week, I'm telling you. If I struggled with that, and maybe I did, I come back without a shadow of a doubt, this is for today. That this spirit is moving today. And God is doing miraculous works in Iran. There have been more Iranians, more Muslims in, Af- in this region, not just Iran. There's been more Muslims come to Christ in the last 30 years than there has been in the last three centuries. And that's statistical facts. Shahram gained his freedom because the Lord enabled him to witness to a guard. And in witnessing to the guard, the confirmation of his witness was Shahram was able through a word of knowledge to understand an ailment that the guard had in his shoulder and heal him. Told him he, would, told him he knew what the ailment was, told him he would heal, that Jesus Christ would heal him in the name of Christ as a confirmation that what he was telling him about the truth was in fact true. And coming back the next day, that man was healed and a relationship developed and eventually that man and his family came to Christ and eventually Sharam was released on bail which they have a justice system, but the, the penalties he was facing were death penalties. To lead somebody to Christ is subversion to the government. It, it's basically like our um, terror. It would be like a, like a terrorist attacking a city in the United States. That type of penalty, that's the same penalty that they have in Iran for leading somebody to Christ. 
that you're out to destroy. Listen, the 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 the, the Khomeini's, the the. The, uh, the presidents of Iran, they have, they have stood and they've said, I am, we are not afraid of the United States of America. We will destroy Israel and we will destroy the United States Navy. They can send every aircraft carrier they want into our seas. We are not afraid of them. But they are afraid of one man coming to Christ. One man coming to Christ. They're terrified. Do you understand the power of the gospel? Sharam the assistant to the king. Would you stand with me this morning? Where is that desperate, desolate land? Is it across the street? Is there a family across the street that's desperate and desolate, despondent, dark? That is the harvest field. Is it across the town? Is it, is it, is it in Kensington where that team was yesterday in those dark despondent, desolate neighborhoods? Or is it around the world in Iran where the Spirit of God is moving through dreams and visions and healings and people are coming to know Christ more than they have in the last 300 years? You know, we come here this morning and you know, I was thinking about this. This is Brother Zach. We were talking about this as we were traveling home. And um, I, I, I really like Shady Maple. Anybody like to go to Shady Maple? I like to go to Shady Maple. But I'll tell you what, I come out of there and I start thinking sometimes. I go, man, this is sin. Like, <laughs> this really is sinful. If you, like, it could be sinful. All things in moderation, but that could be sinful. Listen, we come, this is a buffet we have the privilege of coming to every single Sunday. Do you understand? Do you understand there's a buffet table that's set for us here by Pastor Bob and the worship leaders? Do you understand that there's, Wednesday night, Alistair Begg, that's a buffet. We come as a church, we eat, we're, we're fat with, with this love and this, this equipping of the, of the gospel. Where are we going with it? Where are we going with it this morning? Pastor John.